Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It's Magic Monday, where things are getting pretty strange around here. We have a double dose of the death of Doctor Strange before turning things over to Strange Academy. Kicking things off is Death of Doctor Strange Bloodstone, which features one of our team favorites, Elsa Bloodstone, before we turn things over to the most recent issue, X-Men Black Knight. Now, this could have gone X-Men, this could have gone Black Knight, and I decided to put it in Mondays hoping that maybe some X-Men readers will come on over and check out some of the more magical things going on here over on X's for podcast but we hope you guys enjoy these next two segments and if you guys like what you hear you'll probably like what you see so don't forget to check us out over on Twitter and Instagram at X is for podcast hey everybody welcome back to another episode of X is the podcast the show where we cover Marvel's mutants magic and bloodstones I'm your host Jonah and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at peak Jonah that's P-E-A-K hey everybody I'm Nick and you can find me trying to sustain my inner demon's insatiable hunger for vengeance over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Uh, uh, hey, it's Nathan where I'm trying to help exercise those demons from Nico, I guess. I Yay, guess. thank Why you. Not? Yay, you'll be saved. You'll be saved. Okay, anyway, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at DazzlerAOA. That's like Dazzler AOA. <laughs> oh, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D. UDA. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, and we hope you survived this experience, unlike that demon that has been in Cullen for years and decidedly no longer there. That must mean we're covering Death of Doctor Strange Bloodstone. Now, uh, this issue was written by Teeny Howard, with art by Ig Guerra, colors by Diho Lima, and letters by VC's Joe Caramagna. Now, this has been uh, a long time coming for me, as this show's resident Elsa Bloodstone stan, the only fan of her in the entire world the only person who has been begging pots and pans uh louder and harder than anybody else on the internet to try to get her at some point in ongoing i will take a miniseries i will take something anything i love this this hyper this hyper exaggerative revisionist history I'm oh, really yeah. here for it. I love this. Please keep going. Listen, I'm in charge wow. and I get to tell you what the history is. <laughs> history is yeah. the winners. And right now I'm winning because Elsa got a book. <laughs> and my first question, as in not in an actual mean question, I would love to know everybody's experience with Elsa and or Cullen, whether it's, you know, I think the most recent appearance of Cullen was over in Teeny's Excalibur, where he tried to kiss, um, what's his face? Richter. And then... <laughs> chased everybody because he's entitled like that you know i really enjoy this very angsty chilling adventures of sabrina in the family situation going on i love these people they are so cute and so angry about everything first of all i've been in love with elsa bloodstone since next wave like many people you know that was our first introduction to her on like a big stage after her cheesecakey mini and she's had my heart ever since cullen you know i like Cullen in concept, but I feel like I'm never a big fan of the book he's in. I wasn't a big Avengers Arena guy, just not my thing. And I 
I feel like I'm waiting for him to like really kick ass. This was pretty close. I was pretty happy here. And I also love that it's, you know, we were just actually talking about this in a number of rooms, but I love when writers have like an agenda and they're not even a little bit subtle about it. And Teeny Howard is like the Bloodstones, bonk, and then just comes up to the next person and she's like, hey, do you read comics? Bloodstone, bonk. I love this agenda. It's where my heart is at. Uh, and I'm also here for this agenda. You said this was close to the chilling adventures of Sabrina. I more so thought so. This was more like Adam's family values. Nathan, what is your experience with either Elsa and Slash or Colin? Or the Adam's family values. I have to assume you <laughs> love that movie. Uh, who doesn't? I mean, you know, it's like goth and it's humor and it's like a little tad scary. Like, what's not to love about that movie? Like, yes. Uh, me and Elsa. My relationship with Elsa is... Uh, like I would imagine a lot of people like you get Elsa here and there you don't really have a good solid voice like, I've read obviously I've read Neckwave I've read A4 she was in and a lot of her issues where she pops up in, I usually if I see her on the cover and I know she's gonna be there I'm gonna take up but the problem with Elsa is that since she's been written by so many writers it really hasn't had a chance to have one writer develop her no and uh, Elsa Bloodstone also just has a very trepidatious beginnings uh, very often a lot of uh, it is really not considered canon anymore. Uh, they kind of done away with what a lot of it was done, but Elsa Bloodstone's ori original miniseries was uh, a bad Laura Croft parody, and that's kind of who Elsa started as, and it wasn't until later where they decided to redefine what kind of character type she was going to be into being a little bit more of what I think more modern readers would know her as, but I do agree with you, Nathan, that she doesn't have a lot of appearances that are actually very heavily promoted, and unless you're specifically looking for the those books that she's in, you're only ever really going to get her cameo appearances and a lot of different writers will have a little bit of different interpretation of what they want to do with this character. Steve, what is your experience with Elsa and Colin? Uh, well, it's not it's not extensive and it's not very positive. I probably first read Elsa Bloodstone in Next Wave. Seeing the Next Wave swear iconography here doesn't really, doesn't make me feel as good as maybe it should. I kind of wish that that comic had never become canon. I agree that, to me, Elsa Bloodstone never feels like she has a consistent voice. And here it feels like, yet again, a different Elsa than I've ever read. But I've not read a lot. Like, I've read multiple appearances and maybe, like, you know, Avengers side comics or uh, I think some Secret Wars tie-ins were probably things that I've read her in. And I feel like I can't get a grasp on, like, who she is because I feel like she's a different person every time I read her. Colin feels really consistent to me, and it's a character I hate. Like, I, I just don't like Colin. I don't like him at all. I don't like him in concept, even. Like, I don't I don't get his concept. Is his power that he bonds to extra-dimensional parasitic aliens? Because uh, I thought it was just, like, a one-time thing, but this comic seems to imply that that's just, like, a thing he does. So then he's Ariel Child, the Dark Child, and it, this is a fantastic '90s cheesecake comic. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't, I don't understand what are his powers. Now. He's he's just a shit, and he's 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 not a shit that I'd like. He's not a shit that like I think is fun to read. Honestly, none of them are. Like, I feel really bad for saying this because I know Jonah, you really care about Elsa Bloodstone, but like reading this comic has made me less interested in reading any of these characters again. I just I feel like their dislike of each other is so weirdly like stilted, and it feels. 
forced to me. It doesn't feel organic when I'm reading it. I just feel like I'm kind of like supposed to laugh along, like there should be a laugh track here. And I, yeah, it did not work for me so well. But to be fair, the, the Bloodstones really just don't work for me in general, I think. Well, and I, but I feel like that's exactly like a lot of my comparison to Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. I really hate Hilda and Zelda's relationship in the first season. They're so cruelly antagonistic of one another with no underlying affection. And ah, then it yeah. just sort of turns around dramatically and suddenly they're great siblings and I have terrific affection for them. I think and that's like, a great metaphor. I, that's what I would really like here. I really need these two to go from Cain and Abel to a much more, like, I, I don't know. I think there's nothing more powerful. I, maybe it's because my sister is like to this day, one of my best friends in the universe, but like, I, I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to tell a more positive story. Cause like, I don't know. And I'm going to, I'm going to pivot to Nathan for a second by accident. But like one of the things that I remember like growing up that filled me with hope was I was like, yeah, their dad might've been a psychotic abuser, but Mark and Annie, <laughs> they awful. really came together and forged haunted and house of leaves. And that's what I want. I want the bloodstones <laughs> the to <laughs> Yeah. I want the, I want the bloodstones to come together and make ha- haunted and house of leaves. And I want them to stick it to their pretty hot Oscar making father director human. And I, I, <laughs> That's what I want. I don't know who Mark Z. Danieluski's dad is. Is this somebody that I'm supposed to know? He, their dad was actually an no. Oscar-winning documentary maker, and it's why he was such a psychotic perfectionist. Oh. I, I, I thought I, he was just a writer. Like, just ha- happened to have a sister who made good music. No, their dad was, like, uh, a guy, and they, like, ran away from home and, like, lived on the street minting their own subway tokens to, wow. like, buy food. So, like, they did what they did like out of the ground out of nothing poe uh like busked for years and okay, she got super into um i didn't making... know you knew as much as i did wow yeah so she got super into making like uh groove music because it's what she could put on her four track and it's what she could play in the subway so it's why early on poe is known as the mistress of groove and then later on moves to a more organic uh full band sound when she's able to have like a studio yeah, poor I love Poe that. Corpo owner contract issues. Oh, Ugh, I know, right? It's the worst. Atlantic. To talk about what you were saying, Steve, uh, first off, I, I always want to promote this. You don't have to like anything that anybody else likes if you did not like this or like these characters. I am much more appreciative that you feel comfortable expressing that than someone trying to yes-man me because it's a character that I specifically love. Yeah. I would much rather you be like, no, I don't like these. These are my problems because it helps. It is very much more helpful where I can take off my bloodstone colored glasses and be able to really objectively look at a piece of work. It also makes editing the show more fun. <laughs> I don't I don't think I like the characters uh, just because I have seen them repeatedly, but I specifically, like, I think this issue doesn't work for me in a number of specific ways, and I think we can get into that later. Absolutely. And part of what I am hearing about this dynamic of Elsa and Cullen is that they have this tumultuous relationship that, from my understanding, comes out of nowhere. There really isn't a specific reason why they dislike each other so much. Oh, and that's, it's not even, that's like, so much I, worse. I, I 
assumed that there was some like long-standing thing that made this all make sense that I was just missing. No, they're both just really uh, contrary people. Well, honestly, that's that's kind of about it. From my understanding, what the current canon is is that Elsa was much older when Colin was born. That has so far been a consistent thing throughout their life. But they've both had similar experiences with their father, but they both don't like each other, kind of for no reason. Part of it, I believe, is that Colin was a little bit upset that Elsa kind of just shipped him off once their mother Elise passed away that he kind of was just sent to boarding schools they don't talk about Bruno and it but I don't know if the hatred dynamic can work, especially because if you're not used to these characters, it A, feels weirdly inorganic that you're expected to know that they don't like one another and that they fight and bicker. Not even like siblings, they're just mean to one another. They are cruel. Versus having a lot more concrete reason. I personally think that there's a lot more you can do. I think better arguments could be had if one had a, like, if Cullen had a different vision of his father, where he was a lot more supportive of Ulysses and blind to the bad things Ulysses did and else doesn't understand why Cullen doesn't give him why Cullen gives him too much credit I think there's a lot more and a lot better storytelling you can do with their relationship involving their father as well as each other if it was given time to develop but nobody's been given that opportunity because she doesn't have the stories a lot of Elsa's stories are a lot more solo issues as well as her making appearances with characters that she kind of is a little bit abrasive towards or they're kind of like their issues where she's not the main star looking at oh I personally love her in Legion of Monsters that's a Michael Morbius issue of him being the king of monsters down in the gigantic New York subway system. Uh, I'm sorry, sewer system, not subway system. And then you have her over and playing a major role in things like Monsters Unleashed, but she's not the main character of that. There are other characters that are more important than her role in that. Mm-hmm. So I understand that if you don't, even if you have read everything of Elsa or close to like I have, you're not really going to understand a lot of what's going on or understand why their relationship is poor. When Strange Academy was announced and my Jonah uh, as a joke saying, well, Elsa should be a teacher. She should be teaching them about monsters. I was only half joking in that sense because in my mind, it would make sense to have a teacher who does know a lot about magical creatures as well as monsters so that these kids would know how to deal with them, what you can do with hearts. I would love to know, how do you guys feel about this distinction that Elsa isn't really affected by the death of Doctor Strange in the way that, because she didn't really know him personally, but she's a lot more annoyed. (laughs) And I would love to know that perspective of how this death is affecting her and how you guys are reacting to it Hmm. it did feel uh, again to me this issue did a lot of this with every single character but it did feel to me like elsa hating wizards was kind of out of the blue and not really connected to a a reason other than saying like this character needs to be angry at somebody else all the time and so this is what we're doing because it's a doctor strange issue uh it did have echoes to me of like the mcu baron mordo So on that level, I kind of, like, I got it. And I was like, this could be a compelling and interesting thing. I've been waiting for Baron Mordo to come back in those movies forever. But yes, sorcerers are often doing magical things that are bad. That's kind of like the point of Doctor Strange comics. Like, that's a thematic through line. But like, also they are doing that because there are monsters and the monsters are threatening. So I don't know. This This is like one of those weird dichotomies that to me feels like it doesn't actually exist. I feel like I'm it's it's so hard because I completely agree with Steve on it just sort of how can you be a monster hunter and not be like yeah you know sorcerers are pretty necessary yeah Aren't they sorcerers? Are, am, am I wrong? Are Elsa and Colin not like sorcerers? Like, there's a no. there's a point yeah. in this where the little girl whose name I'm forgetting right now, Lyra. Um, sorry, Lyra. Lyra, thank you. Where Lyra is doing some magic, and she's like, "No, I don't do magic. I eat magic." I'm like, "Okay, but you're doing magic." 
but you yeah, are. like Lyra you're is a magic. completely new character for this story. So anything introduced is her canon. So Lyra being able to is a magical being. Sure, that makes sense. From my understanding, I don't, I can't 100% confirm for Colin. Elsa doesn't know any magic. All of Elsa's powers come specifically from the gem, and she's just a, an extremely talented marksman and acrobat, and has all the abilities from the gem. She herself does not cast any magic or do anything magical. But it's magic. So she's kind of like Blade in that way, which I like. Yes. Yeah. Although Blade is is a vampire, but is not a vampire. And you know, I think one of the things that has to come up when you talk about Elsa Bloodstone is she is a character who bears so much more potential than she's ever been able to execute. And so I think when you're talking about such a blank slate character, you're always going to look at uh, writers coming in with, not like in a judgmental way, but I, I, you know, I've said it a lot on the show. Every writer is always kind of looking for their Neil Gaiman rockstar moment. And you never know what your breakout character is going to be. You know what I mean? Like, and I love seeing a woman get to write Elsa Bloodstone. I maybe would have liked to have seen a little bit more depth this feels like a very surface character still is kind of the problem. If there was more under, you know, it's it's just this thin veneer followed by another thin veneer followed by another thin veneer. If there was something inside the shell, I would be a little bit more excited. But until then, it's just sort of like dumb adventure comics. And I want more from her than that. Like we've seen this exact story. Basically, I, I think given more time to marinate and done better because it's a large format in the Elsa Bloodstone book with like an introduction of a sister that was unknown trying to throw off the dynamic between Elsa and Colin. It's just... Thank God. <laughs> yeah, it, it just seems... Uh, I, I, my problem is I've seen the story in a format that I thought was much better accurate for them. And I really get that. And something that this... The introduction of Lyra Bloodstone, Ulysses' first daughter. I am not surprised by this being allowed to come through. I'm surprised that the, if, this, if Elsa was a character that was given more attention, I would actually imagine we'd see a lot more Bloodstone siblings. They wouldn't specifically have, you know, the Bloodstones themselves, but you Ulysses is a man that's been around for centuries upon centuries, and he's Ollie not Queen a female. Yeah, he's all uh, clean. He can just have a thousand kids, and no one has to question it. For real. So, um, seeing Lyra and this introduction of this character, I personally I found this character a little bit weird because it softened Elsa in a way that's never been done before. Elsa's uh, the basic things that I really love about Elsa that I don't know if were fully hit for me in this issue is that Elsa is supposed to be a very sharp, quick-witted person. She has a very very sharp tongue and isn't afraid to use it and in this issue it felt like she was taking on I don't want to call it maternal but this big sister role that she's never really been placed in before and I don't know if it makes a lot of sense for the character because she is a much more of a loner a lot of characterization about Elsa is that she is fine being alone she doesn't like working in teams she doesn't like working with other people she barely talks to her brother she barely talks to the people that are in her life that she can trust she doesn't have a lot of friends so seeing her not only rely on this person that she's never met before but have this weird connection that almost doesn't seem like this is Elsa was a little weird for me and I don't know if it quite hit but I would love to know everybody's opinions on how the introduction of Lyra Bloodstone Ulysses first daughter who was trapped in this magical void because Ulysses was an asshole and basically sacrificed her for power <laughs> how do you guys feel about this and the introduction of the Null Stone I don't know I guess I feel feel like if she was going to start being sororal, start with 
Cullen. I didn't need another. I, I don't know. Like, yeah, cool. I do like another sibling, but their relationship doesn't need this sibling. So like, if you want to give me this other sister, which like, and her name being Lyra, I'm like, wait, didn't, uh, didn't Carol Danvers just get L'Oreal or Clairol or whatever? And so I, I don't know. I, I like the additional sibling. I didn't need it. I'm uh, with both you on this. I kind of like the character of Lyra. I think she'd be a great supporting character in like a Doctor Strange book. It's just Elsa has these two conflicting strong traits and these are almost her only traits in this book which are a deep connection to blood family and a deep hatred of blood family. Like those are, <laughs> those are the two things that are going on with her in this issue for a lot of it. She goes on and on about how she hated Ulysses, about how she dislikes Cullen but she's you know she's worried about Cullen and she treats him like a little brother but their, their relationship is so like weirdly overtly antagonistic for reasons that I can't cannot comprehend and it doesn't come through in this issue and it's you mentioned Cain and Abel earlier, Nico, and I was assuming you meant like the Vertigo Cain and Abel, because that's what I think of. Those two have more of a brotherly relationship than anybody in this comic, and they are literally always murdering one another. Like yeah. And somehow that reads truer. I don't I don't know what it is, but it's just that, you know, she she says we can trust this strange person because she's our blood sibling, even though we don't even know this person. And it's like, Elsa doesn't like any of her blood family. Like, So I, I try to contextualize this in my mind as somebody who like never got the family they wanted and has always wanted a family and maybe sees this as a new connection, a new attempt to start. But somebody like Elsa Bloodstone, who's just always been hunting monsters alone, it just it's so strange to me that she's that she would want this. I know the issue starts off with her talking about the the monster just wants love and i think that's supposed to represent herself but i don't know the the pieces are all there but i don't feel like they link up quite well and i think that's i think that's honestly true of uh the art here uh some some pages the layout just it doesn't tell the story fluidly in a way that i like from sequential art i think this was like a big issue for me when reading this i had to keep like going back over pages and being like wait why did she get to the house before the meteor why did the meteor crash in the house and seemingly explode from the floor there's there's just some missed links between the story and the art that make it difficult for me to follow the familial through line i also think that every panel looked like a trading card which is both really stunning and yeah it leads to sort of like lack of page construction right like but every figure was beautiful it just felt like it didn't always feel and you know that's something that chris bacalo actually kind of gets the opposite problem a lot just to like you not you know just like to point out like it is a common problem where chris bacalo gets so obsessed with what a page looks like some of the panels sometimes look like everything is melting Mm -hmm. right i feel like this is kind of the opposite every panel needed its fuck yeah moment and it was so many fuck yeah moments on this page that there almost wasn't room for a page i'm having a hard time with this one because like i want to love it like i I love elsa so much i like i want this to like be great the colon elsa thing there's really no reason for it and i did not realize that ulysses bloodstone was like how you say his name nyark or whatever from dc comics where like he's just got like a like the big magic stone or like vandal savage even like yep 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 i was like Oh, yeah, Ulysses Bloodstone is exactly Vandal Sandwich or Nyark. I, like, I think he should just show up in Kazar, Lord of the Savage Land, and be like, I'm a different kind of problem. And like, because <laughs> he still has that whole Adventurers Club kind of congaloosh feeling. He does. And you know what? If, if that would get uh, Zach Thompson ongoing from, from Kazar, I would sign me the fuck up for it. 
Put her in Kazar. Let's do it. I'm I'm down. That's that's what that's what I need to make it work. And like Cullen can be trapped in a cage and like has to dance like a go go boy for Diamond Tap. Yeah. Can I think of his name? Domavoy. 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 Cullen or the person who put Cullen in the cage? Uh, Domavoy. Cullen go go dance. I feel like you know you can make an argument for who's being ca- the captive there on that one. I I agree. I agree. I would watch Cullen go go dance. I did not like Elsa Bloodstone being like, yeah, I heard you're racist. My brother has a good heart <laughs> god that was really like old money that was really cool. old money of her just being like oh keep up with the times but he doesn't mean it like oh my god yeah she really then, babies this brother that she fucking hates <laughs> and that's where it's this weird dichotomy that we that you know was mentioned throughout the episode that elsa in that moment and this is like from the exact same writer who wrote it elsa doesn't in my opinion for that moment do enough to really scold cullen of being like bro you can't do that you you, you can't act like that you you really can't do that that's not how we treat people <laughs> no <laughs> and like it was a very lax moment and it's not one that i think elsa normally would stand for truly any moment given the opportunity elsa will cut cullen down to size and the fact that she didn't over that she was like yeah i heard about your antics and then they just kind of brush past it i get it there's a bigger threat at the moment but maybe you should have a sit down conversation with him if you do want him to actually be your brother but how can you have a character have conviction when the character doesn't have similar characterization issue to issue and i think like this is this is the reason that perhaps you know just to use something that i use as a as a common base point this is a final fantasy thing this is Squall doesn't have a whole lot of personality, but he's got the gun blade. So he's awesome. We love it. Cloud doesn't have a whole lot of personality, but he's got the buster blade. We love it. It's awesome. It inspired an entire generation of X-Men characters. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, we love iconography and we will work really hard to build the character around lovable iconography. Look how many times they revised Deadpool until he worked. And that's kind of what I think Elsa Bloodstone is going through. She's going through her temporal revision until they figure out the way to make this incredibly dynamic design work. And that's what it's going to be. But I think we're going to see them keep redesigning her personality till it's as popular as her costume. Cullen, my personal opinion, really never was an interesting character. I'm not actually exactly sure what the purpose Cullen was meant to be, even in, in his original incarnation where he was Elsa's younger brother who uh, who Elise was pregnant with. Technically, originally, Ulysses was already dead at that point and had no hand in raising Colin, and that was later changed, which I think was a better change. But I don't understand what role Colin was meant to serve in the greater Marvel universe, but also just in his own narration for Ulysses, for Elsa, for himself. I don't really know what he was meant to be, and I think part of the only semi-interesting about him was this interdimensional demon that he happened to be bonded to because of his father. It was something that I think can work for a lot of conflict, whether you want to call it internal or, you know, metaphorical for him being queer and having a little demon inside of him and not knowing what to do with it. (laughs) But you also uh, (laughs) have, I've been on a lot of queer theory about horror films and Cullen would make a great villain. But it's also, and it could have been an interesting conflict between him and his father that he blames his father because it was fully his father's fault for leaving him out. Uh, And Camp saying, you're old enough. This is what I did when I was a kid. You can survive. And 
him uh, unfortunately being bonded to this demon. I would love to know everybody's opinions on this, that any sort of conflict with that is now just done. I personally found it a little too A, hand wavy of like, yeah, no, you're able to exercise the demon now. And B, you lost the only thing unique about Colin. Yeah. Uh, what is he gonna do to fight monsters or defend his house now? I mean, like, obviously nobody can do magic inside, I guess. But like, man, uh, I don't know. It, it, it seems heavily implied here that this is a thing he can do again and often uh, and that it just didn't work well last time, which is not really square with what I understand of Colin's backstory, but I don't understand it very well. I, thank you for giving me some of that some of that fill in context just now. What he doesn't really have much going for him other than his like weird racism now. Uh, no, a, I mean his personality. A, <laughs> yeah, and like I don't know. It's it's interesting because in this book earlier, Lyra first goes like, "Oh, now you can control the monster," and I was like, "Oh, that's cool. Colin can be in control now and not such a you know a raging monster all the time. He doesn't have to flare out of control." I wish that was something that was built like in a storyline where he got a handle on his emotions. But like, I guess this is a way to do that. But then by the end of the story it's gone entirely and that kind of that kind of jarred me i was it's an odd choice to do and i feel like i don't know to what end like you know you asked jonah what purpose he's meant to serve in the marvel universe um you know not every writer ascribes to chekhov's gun and so at some point they were just like oh and mom is pregnant with a boy and or maybe it was originally that he was going to grow up and be Elsa's equal in every way and the next writer didn't keep that going you know what I mean like that's the the thing about a shared universe at one point some writer might have intended to make Cullen interesting but it just didn't keep getting passed along and I think something I've noticed with Teeny Howard's writing while I am a big fan I noticed that sometimes she does kind of a best parts version of the story there's just a few too many moments in her awesome stories to fit in a single 20 pager and I feel like the places we tend to get shortchanged are the moments between that make the emotional beats pay off so oftentimes if you read a ton of Teeny Howard all at once it's all there and it's all amazing but over time it doesn't feel so great unfolding because without all of the moments right there for you there's something often lacking from the individual issue I understand what you're saying, Nico, that not not every character has to have this grand cosmic purpose in a story, and not every character has to be the chosen one or any real huge significance to the world at large, but where at least I find that Elsa has some characteristics that tend to follow her around, whether, and it depends on what writer chooses to use what characteristics when you get her, it feels like Cullen had specific characteristics, but none of that really amounted to a very interesting character, personally. And then what I I did find at least interesting that not a lot of writers got to use because Cullen just isn't a popular enough character to be utilized in a lot of different titles to give him a lot more content and meat to his story. This thing that at least I, I found interesting that could be part of a lot of conflicts that these writers and storytellers can use to delve into and talk about was now a little hand-waved. I, everything about it, I think, maybe just happened a little too fast. Maybe this story, and even if you if you literally change nothing about this story, lots better into like issue number six of a 12 issue series of of elsa where the first five give you every all the context that nothing here seems out of place i maybe maybe that's where the story fits better as opposed to a solo standoff i, I love that completely right yeah absolutely like i was trying to figure out what my main issue with the story like beyond the small problems with storytelling in it like it does feel like issue six of like a 12 issue series like it, it feels like i'm reading a 
comic for which I don't have context that exists elsewhere. And this, like, if this was a tie-in from the the Bloodstone series into Death of Doctor Strange rather than a one-shot, I think it would have made more sense. If you told me that there was, like, a Marvel Unlimited Bloodstone title that's going to follow the three different Bloodstones for different lengths of time from this, this would, even then, that limited, weird kind of, you're clearly not leaning into this as far as you should, would still buy a little bit, like, would engender more goodwill from me for this issue, just knowing more coming. Yeah, I completely agree. Hey everybody, welcome back to Access for Podcast, the show where we take a look at mutants, magic, and marvelous adventures through London week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And as usual, that makes me Kevo. You can find me over on the socials at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And I guess I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA at Twitter and Instagram. That's right. Twizzler. Twizzler. Twitter and Instagram. Twitter and Instagram. Dazzler AOA. Hello, it's me, Steve. And you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. Yeah, got it. And we are here today to talk about the latest entry in what seems like the weirdest, slowest obituary in history. Doctor Strange has been like dying since the day he was born at this point because the death of Doctor Strange has marched on throughout 2021 and into 2022. And we are here to talk about what is probably my most excitedly like hyped issue by title. We're here to talk about Death of Doctor Strange X-Men Black Knight number one by Cy Spurrier and Bob Quinn with colors by Israel Silva, letters by VC's Corey Pettit and cover by Corey Smith and Rochelle Rosenberg. I really love like everything I just said, whether it's getting to read a story about Dane and Jax together, or it's getting to see the Treehouse X-Men operating as kind of like an event team, Bob Quinn and Cy Spurrier doing more stuff. This is where I'm at. How did you guys feel coming into this issue? First, I gotta say, like, thanks for getting stay. I miss you stuck in my head. Like, okay, thanks nico um well this is not that i think that i'm throwing <laughs> but i'm throwing <laughs> but okay so besides that like oh i this issue has like the art oh, oh my god like bob quinn is like a, a genius like holy shit and like the coloring by israel silva and Corey Pete is always like just like one of the best letterers out there like story wise there's a lot of stuff i loved but there's a lot of stuff that i didn't like why are the x-men in london like i thought mutants couldn't go there okay i have a theory on that. Okay, <clears throat> hear me out. The nation state of Krakoa is so pushy about being, you know, a recognized government that London's like, no, you can't come here. But they're like, Treehouse X-Men, you guys don't do a whole lot. You guys just stop event level threats and individual issues. You guys can be here anytime you want at our <laughs> London Italian restaurant. See, for the... <laughs> nice. Billy Joel. Always good. The Stranger classic album. Because Death of Doctor Strange is, as you said, the lo- longest obituary in the world, and because it's been going on for so long, and it even takes place like after Defenders, it seems. I don't know where this slots in with what's going on in Excalibur, because the final issue of Excalibur left us off with, you know, racist Rousseau running Britain, Merlin in complete control, mutants banned from the island. So, I mean, like, clearly they're all anti witch breed and in this like really agonizing.
antagonize, antagonizing state at this point. So it, it is a little weird for me to see the X-Men just like hanging out in London, but I guess, you know, they probably just went there without permission like they do. You know, they got the Blackbird. So I guess I should probably provide the not rating a single other title perspective and say, I didn't know any of that. So I was just sort of like, it's the X-Men. Cool. That sounds real complicated, though. So I really do like that that read so smoothly to you then, because that means somebody who came in to read it for Doctor Strange, maybe because they were a big No Way Home fan, or perhaps because they like men with capes and gloves, whatever brought them to this. And who love doesn't? men with capes and gloves. It's, like, it's a look. It's a good look. One time I got tweeted at by a fingerless glove account on Twitter. <laughs> what? A fingerless glove account? That's amazing. I <sighs> tweeted a quote from Parks and Recreation, and so this account started following me. If only we could get Lon Chaney to play, uh, <laughs> oh god, I had it, and it was going to be, I, damn it, it was somebody with gloves that was really cool, and I was going to get Lon Chaney to play somebody really cool with gloves, and now I've forgotten who it was that had really good gloves. Hell yeah. No one, there, perfect. No one is cool with just gloves. You need the cape to complete the look. Dexter! Damn it! It was Dexter! Because Dexter <laughs> wears gloves! Okay. Oh, okay. Lon Chaney yeah, as Hellion. <laughs> Lon Chaney as Hellion as Dexter. So, <laughs> now, speaking of crazy killers and dark voices, this was our first opportunity to interact with our new dual role group team Black Knight project thing. And I'm thrilled because we loved Jax from day one and it's been really exciting to see Dane grow into more of a realized hero. It does feel perhaps a little bit like out of nowhere, Cy Spurrier was like, look at this schlub. And we were all like, oh, has he been like that schlubby this whole time? And Cy Spurrier was like, uh, yeah. And we Did were like, not oh. Notice? Oh, okay. And now he's all of a sudden like back where we remember him really quickly. <laughs> like, I'm fine with it. It was a really short-lived sort of well of sadness. How do you guys feel about getting to see Dane and Jax pick up within a year of that shared mantle moment, which feels pretty significant for a new young female character of color? You can tell some time has passed. They've they've had a little bit of time to get used to the fact that they're daughter and father. So like, you know, they're they're trying to grow their relationship. Jax is really, really, really trying hard to step into her role as Black Knight. I do like the growth of it. I don't get how like she's going around on the horse that Dane badly clones. Some of it doesn't fit as well writing, which is weird because Siberia wrote the last mini, right? So like you would think this would be a really good continuation of it, but there's just it's a little disjointed it is very tonally different from the introductory arc i very much agree with that like nico pointed out with how different dane's behavior is he was a complete and total wreck in the arc that introduced Jax, and now he's you know still a little bit doofy but that's the word that i would use instead of how it would have described him in the first few issues that they were together which was oh my god he was like throwing up on the whole horse and stuff <laughs> yeah it was embarrassing that sounds fun i didn't read the size for your black knight run sounds like a good time throwing up on a horse and all this is my first time meeting Jax, actually and i thought she was really fun i thought i thought it was really cool having her in this issue her and dane sharing the sharing the black knight mantle is uh is interesting and new i always like this kind of like try at a character i like his insistence on referring to his chair as a siege uh, <laughs> that's very funny to me faisa hussein who's 
was in this issue. I haven't seen since the Al Ewing Captain Britain and the Mighty Defenders series. Uh, so good that two oh, that two issue slice of heaven. So good. Yeah, that was really good. That's like my only real experience with Visa, and she's really great here. She's absolutely fun. I like Dane's being like, tell her I forgot to call text her. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> which Jax doesn't. You know, Faiza is such a terrific character. She comes from the brilliant Paul Cornell and Leonard Kirk, Captain Britain and MI-13, which ran 15 spectacular issues plus an annual. There was also a sort of prequel miniseries by Cornell and Trevor Hairseen, Wisdom 1 through 6 over at Max, which kind of sets up where Pete Wisdom plays a role in that series. The group would go on to appear in a few more things, such as Age of Heroes number 1 in the sea story there, as well as with the exception of Captain Britain, who was at that point sort of sequestered off to the title of Avengers Academy, running the Captain Britain Albion Academy in the background. That was the, a really weird choice. but It was a really weird choice. But the rest of the team showed up in Cy Spurrier's X-Men Legacy for an arc and were a real delight. Why does Captain Britain need an academy? Who does he think he is? The Avengers? The X-Men? Like, Why does he need a school? Wait, because... isn't, didn't Colin go there? Didn't yeah. Colin go? I, I did love Megan being the the headmistress I guess but like she was like she seems a little like too like rah-rah cheerleader to be the like a, head, a good headmistress see and I feel like Colin would make more sense with Strange Academy but I would like to keep Colin as far away from Strange Academy as humanly possible thank you let's keep Colin away from everything I'm okay with that I don't like Colin well but I'm so glad that we're talking about Colin because he's in my notes as one of the things I wanted to talk about there's sort of a unique sort of circuitous incestuous synergy to the creative team that came together here here. Cy Spurrier and Bob Quinn, of course, worked together on 2021's Excellent Way of X before Cy Spurrier had worked on Black Knight 1 through 5, Curse of the Ebony Blade. So now Cy Spurrier and Bob Quinn are over here working on Black Knight, which features Merlin, before Bob Quinn finds himself over in the pages of Knights of X with Teeny Howard dealing with a different side of Merlin. I know we talked a little bit about how this is such a different idea of Merlin and where it fits in with Excalibur. But Kevo, this is probably even more shocking for you, who hasn't read a whole lot of Merlin in 40 years and had to be a, a little bit of a, a time twister for you. Yeah, but when we were reading the classic or whatever era it was, 80s, the 80s era Merlin stuff, I even asked how well it connected with what was going on in modern times Merlin. And as you pitched it to me, the understanding is that Merlin is a very fluid character who will have done one thing here and another thing there and you know that's the very nature of using a legendary figure like a Merlin that you either need to have a very very tight grasp on what their canon is or they need to be incredibly fluid and you know you just sort of accept when you're told something new about them. Merlin's a character who's like uh, an archetype more than a character right? He's like immortal powerful wizard giver of magic so Merlin to Captain Britain is somebody who's like an overseer and guide, I guess, or like a, even like a boss. But Merlin in regards to the Black Knight is a very different story and always has been. They don't relate to each other in the same way. So there's more room to see a different side of things. Merlin now can be characterized as however they want, especially with the sort of Excalibur finale reveal where like, hey, everything died and they got rebooted. So like everything, like anything's fair game with Merlin, I guess now. 
And speaking about the possibility of a number of different tacks with Merlin, they definitely kind of tried to visually hedge their bets with packing some of the best Sorcerer Supreme characters onto that page 22 group shot because you got my girls, Nina and Kushala, right on the page, making me feel all kinds of pretty. And then you got Jericho and Loki. And like, I feel very represented in my fandom here. It is nice to see all of the sorcerers supreme from the Javier Rodriguez series, including the Bashanti. And I think that's supposed to be Newton. I, I do believe it is. Yeah. Yeah. He's got very long hair in this. A lot of good tie-ins to a lot of books I've read recently. Do you mind if we talk a little bit about the art of this, of this issue? Cause that was my favorite part. Oh, please. Absolutely. I'm such a big Bob Quinn Stan. You cannot get Aww. me to talk about Bob Quinn more excitedly. So please I, let's I, do it. Yeah. I like Bob as a, I like him as a person. I like him as an artist. Uh, I think he seems really cool. I enjoyed listening to his conversations on here on our pod. It's really rare that I feel that I have to do this. I don't know the last time I've done this, maybe with Marte Grazia, but where I feel the need to like actually tell an artist themselves that they did a good job. I like flipped open the book and I saw that first panel where the X-Men are fighting in unison against like zombies. And it is just such an amazing like single portrayal of mutants working in perfect sync and harmony. Sync is using Cyclops's powers and it's very clear with the rainbow arc over his head while they're standing on a piece of like presumably magnetic rock that Polaris is lifting into the air and like spinning so that they can do like a spinning action. Like just Jean is like coordinating everything from atop a cliff. Rogue and Wolverine are just slashing and hacking through everything. Meanwhile, Sunfire looks like he's an absolute like lava god. It communicates so much about the teamwork and the spirit of what the X-Men are in this modern era of mutant circuits. It seems so, so effortless that I actually had to go on Twitter and just be like, Bob Quinn, you did so good. Look at this. Like, amazing. It's it's really cool to see like how he actually was able to give Lorna a personality and not over rely on the shades in the coffee cup. Like she's giving like the X Men plus like the X Factor vibes. Like Cyclops's uh, optic blast at, like reverberating out of Laura's claws. Yeah, yeah, like a beam splitter. It reminded me of playing yeah. with like beam splitters and lasers as a kid. Yes, like, it's super cool. It's clever, and Laura looks like she is so pleased with herself. One of the things that Bob Quinn captures so beautifully is that sense of who this X-Men are. It's very much in Bob Quinn's voice, but I see how it fits into the line as a whole. And yet he can do such marvelous horror abstract takes on it. Like on the digital page 10, that nightmarish splash of all of the X-Men inverted into horrifying monsters. It still very much feels like the same book, even though that opening was this glossy, beautiful sort of almost like a cutscene spread. There's something really dynamic about his understanding of the characters that he's able to pervert them so well later in the story. I don't like the trope of like a monstrous fat lady. Obviously there are fat people. There are people who are of all different body shapes and I like seeing them represented in fiction. But whenever I see like a, a super exaggerated, like hideous monstrous version of a, of a fat person played for like horror or villainy, it always bothers me. It really reminded me and Nathan brought this up as well of the OG New Mutants run with uh, Shan under the power of the Shadow King. So that wasn't that wasn't as fun for me specifically, uh, although I was a little bit more willing to f forgive it here. But it just 
Yeah. I wish I wish that this kind of thing wasn't so common in comics that I had to always think that fat phobia was creeping into the pages. And I very much agree with you. You know, I've talked about my, you know, journey on here from time to time. I was, you know, 300 pounds uh, before I got super into fitness and those sorts of depictions definitely did not go unnoticed by me. It's not so much that I think I overlooked it here as much as I think Steve what you said is really true. It's just such an unfortunate consistent thing I'm almost numb to how frequently exaggerated body type is used to create a context for horror and it is too easy to overlook because it's so common so I definitely thank you so much for pointing that out because it's an important element to discuss yeah I I really like body horror I, I don't think there's anything horrific about a fat person and I think that a lot of a lot of media does and yeah I do love the look of the Ravenous Twins, and I love the idea of the Ravenous Twins. If Polaris decided to use her monstrous form here as her costume, I would not be upset with it at all. And like, because that look is fucking amazing. I love the hellish look of this. Polaris's outfit especially, I think, is the best. Every single X-Man has like their slaves dangling from them on like chains or something. It, it is very like Ninth Circle of Hell. Jean's got a bunch of people like lifting up her bus seat or whatever it is. <laughs> I don't want to say that word too quickly. Wolverine's got a, a seemingly a tail or maybe a wallet chain out of uh, pe- souls, but Polaris is just like chains wrapped around her, people buoying her up, dangling from her skirt. Like, I think that that's a, that's a rad look. This is serving me full on Darkhold. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, speaking of Darkhold and speaking of the hungry land, our antagonist in this issue, I had several thoughts about this and I, it doesn't seem to be either of them, <laughs> but like when I was reading this, my first thought was like, Oh, it's blight spoke, right? Like we're talking about Merlin. We're talking about other world. What's the hungry land. It's gotta be blight spoke, right? There doesn't seem to be a connection here. I wonder if there will be later, but my second thought was where's the blood wraith. <laughs> I have been uh, obsessed with the Blood Wraith ever since the Ultron storyline in the 90s, where he devastated a small country that it's essentially it's Lithuania. It's a Baltic state. I'm a quarter Lithuanian myself, so like this is uh, something that always was interesting to me as a kid because I was like, oh, there's a place in the Marvel Universe that's like kind of representative of where some of my ancestors came from, and then I'm like, oh, every single one of them is dead hor- horrifically, yeah, <laughs> yeah, dead. Yeah. It's like the, one of the worst genocides in Marvel comics, and I'm just like, well, that that was fun while it lasted. But because of that, I got really interested in the Blood Wraith and the concept of the Blood Wraith. I often ask people, like, is the, is the Blood Wraith still just, like, in Slorania? Like, because they didn't get rid of it. They just trapped it in the country that it killed forever. And so, like, I always like to think of the Marvel Universe as having just one country where there's just, like, a giant Blood Wraith walking around that nobody can go to because they never figured out how to solve that problem. And I was wondering, like, the Hungry Land kind of feels like Slorania to me. And it was I was kind of, like, itching for a Blood Wraith appearance in this book since we got many other Black Knight supporting characters. I, w- I wonder what, whatever is going to happen with that character. I would be excited to see them bring it back around. I feel like, you know, when you said if this could possibly become Blight Spoke down the line, we had a discussion about it recently where we said, why bring up uh, someone else's character when you could create your own character that better fits the story? And I think the one caveat on that is when you've created something or you've done something that you ultimately come to realize fits a really cool idea that's already out there and drawing that line back, connecting 
those things after the fact can be really fulfilling. So I definitely like that you used the phrase not yet on whether or not there's a connection to Blight Spoke because that is the sort of thing that I really think is pushing so much of Krakoa forward in an exciting way. And one of the things that I thought was truly exciting about this issue was the sort of dual role of Black Knight between the sword and the siege and how that sort of creative operating system really is just kind of a take on Punisher and Man in the Van. And I I really fucking loved it. And I would love to get your guys' take on that sort of update to the idea of Man in the Van. Yeah, for MCU listeners out there, that's the man in the chair, Ned Leeds. The man in the van is usually a man in the van or Overwatch, Felicity Smoke, Oracle kind of deal. I very much enjoy that role. And I think it's interesting to separate the Black Knight into Siege and Sword. And also that Dane insists on calling it a Siege because he's doing a British thing. Because he's kind of an adorable, pretentious boob. <laughs> yeah, not, not even a British thing. Just his Arthuriana dork deal. Like, nobody calls it a siege. Absolutely nobody calls it a siege. What are you, Chris Claremont? Like... <laughs> The proverbial siege that he proverbially sits on with the sum totality of his whole ass. Hopefully he doesn't perilously sit on that siege. Ooh. But, um... I love I love the reversal of the standard norm that has been put out there with the, the man in the van sort of thing, especially in comics. It, usually we get the Oracle type character in comic where it's a female character as the super genius, you know, calling the shot, but they're the one not doing the action. I love that we're getting that reversal where Jax is the, the younger female one and she's out there and she gets to do all the action and Dane has to sit there and think about what he's done with his life. It's really interesting to draw attention to that synergy and that relationship and the way that duality continues to be an important theme in this story, which is also then later reflected in the combination of the Ebony Blade and Excalibur and the relationship between the sword and the stone, which reflects the relationship between the siege and the sword. That is a really good point. And it also, like, definitely between the siege and the sword thing, like, it has had the sword and the stone it had echoes of like the null stone and the bloodstone from last issue and the whole like wizardly locking away and that and how like this this had a really interesting conclusion that sort of echoed the bloodstone doctor death of doctor strange issue as well making me in retrospect probably like it more a lot of the themes from this issue are teamwork and not doing it alone as reflected in the way oh, yeah. everyone is in awe of the x-men the way that the barrier spell was described and the fact that it fell because Doctor Strange took it all on himself instead of having people help him. I love the fact that in Marvel 616 there is a Fanatics fan club that like Jax was part of when she was yeah. Oh my god, yes. That yes. was super good. Like they are, they are true believers. Yes! <laughs> part of the Merry March- Marvel Marching Society. And I think we all get a no prize for the excitement on that one. <laughs> it was so good! I, yeah, I honestly I really love that. Thank you for bringing that up because I kind of forgot that but i was like yeah i've been doing this since i was a kid i read all the wikis like i know It is a very important part of the X-Men's narrative that the world at large uh, works against them. But realistically, there would also still be people that are rooting for them. And so I love to see when it's brought up. So everything you guys were talking about led me to a pretty unbelievable realization. Almost every one of these one shots was about family. <gasps> wow. Actually, Whether, yeah. You know what? I did not think about that. But like even down to the White Fox and the Spider-Man. Yeah. Every oh, single one really of them is about yeah. familial relations and carrying on a mystical legacy 
legacy or a character legacy or and it's, wow. it's really an overwhelming sense of the the intercommuted nature of family throughout these comics yeah you, know, you make I, a really good point i would not have made that connection oh, that's, well, that's very interesting it's been so much more connective like the thematic strings that hold it all together are so much better than say like i hate to rag on this event again but the, the dark hole didn't really string its event themes that thematically like the doctor strange has i think it's really fair to bring up dark hold though because it definitely influenced my enjoyment of this story after having to sit through the entire dark hold mini when i got to the hungry court spread where it was describing all the characters i was like okay enough i don't need to know this i'm just gonna keep reading and hope it's not important i was gonna wait for the trade but i have been listening to y'all talk about it and it does not really excite me the way i thought it would I ultimately now do not believe that this is the version of Dane Whitman that has anything to fucking do with the movies. And I think but I'm good with that. Me too. The decision that Shang-Chi specifically different number of siblings specifically serves a different purpose in his universe specifically has a different job. Eternals specifically a different thing. Black Widow specifically a different thing. We're reaching a point where I feel like for the most part, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is okay being vastly different than the comics as long as the comics remember to do things like synergize and make the comic version a big deal that summer like and that feels good i mean a lot has been said about how the mcu originally took a lot more inspiration from ultimate comics than it did from the 616 and i think that's a good way to keep looking at it at this point because like (laughs) i personally do not need my eternals comic to be like the movie uh the movie is good i like the movie but i don't want the comics to change to reflect that as long as they just push the comics with the greatest people they can have on it jed bakay on moon knight kieran gillen on eternals like they're doing good work they're getting me to read the comics even if i don't see the movies which i will anyway okay but like the thing i'm really missing from like the MC unification of Marvel is okay so like Spectrum just had a really big guest starring role in WandaVision right where the fuck is Spectrum in comics like come on give me some how fucking is Monica she Rambeau. a lead in yeah, but- Gamma Flight like what did I not do right in my life that I wasn't given that no, yeah you're absolutely right she should have been in Gamma Flight it seems like a glaring omission honestly that would have been amazing but like, also, I don't want her to be like the version from the MCU. <laughs> I, okay, yeah, I, I would like more of her. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. give me more spectrum. <laughs> yes, X Men Black Knight, absolutely. Death of Doctor Strange. <laughs> give me more spectrum in the MCU. See, now normally we end up talking a lot about something that isn't the comic because we don't like a comic, or if we're like kind of bored by the comic. That's not the case here. We're just like constantly amazing. running into tangents because it's such an exciting comic, and we want to talk about all the things we're thinking about. And it's so vivid, and it's so full of luscious color and life there's something so i mean you know bob quinn has been on the show before and talked about his history in video games and i really feel like his experience in working in audience engaging forms of narrative art really comes across in the construction he uses to keep your eye moving through the page if you're not familiar with it there's actually like formats you're supposed to use to move a person's eye across a comic book page it frequently falls to the letterer to do the heavy lifting to fix or or to smooth out moments where that doesn't come across as I think we Bob called Quinn, Kazar recently that was absolutely necessary to a really yeah. 
mind-boggling page layout. Yeah, and I feel like Bob Quinn has a natural way of moving faces, bodies, hands, energy signatures in a way that directs your eye through the story so that a person like Cy Spurrier, who relies on confusion as an element of narrative expression, can do his job to his utmost because the artist is giving him room to really stretch his weird. Yeah, and speaking of his weird, the scene where Rogue, in her gigantic monstrous form, falls, all of them have, like, souls who are enslaved to them. Rogues are a part of her body. I didn't even notice that. But, like, her body, her gigantic body is, and presumably sinks too, is actually composed of, like, a writhing mass of people's souls. And that's such a good expression of her powers and also really gross. Give me more fucking Faiza. Like, she needs to be everywhere. Like, you know, like, if we're going to call her Excalibur, call her Excalibur and, like, let her actually fucking be in Excalibur when they bring it back. But Faiza like, for uh, Knights of X or nothing. Yeah, right? Like, uh, I love her power set. I love her character. Like, why isn't the fucking sword in a book about Otherworld? Don't ask me. The idea that Jax is a mutant. Is, oh, that last page reveal. The last page reveal was interesting. She's going to be in Knights of X, bringing her over with the artist. I'd love that. Um, also, but wouldn't she know, like, wouldn't she have gotten the call to Krakoa, though? Uh, you know, so did the Children of the Atom, right? Like, <laughs> I know that's obviously a different case because they're not mutants. Because I don't know anything about where she's been. Uh, although I do hope she gets that sword out of her soon. Because how's she gonna lie down? It's hard to sleep. I like that it sets us up for more interesting stuff with Jax, and I like that it lets Faisal Hussein get to do some like really fucking cool stuff that is like the central action of the the conclusion. Making her a mutant is interesting. Yeah, as Nathan pointed out, like I she would have gotten the call. And what is her mutant power? I don't know. That's interesting too yeah is it living with a sword in your chest without dying (laughs) it's having a dad it's being a grad student oh that was really sweet at the end when she was like whatever you think works best dad i did think that was kind of a dreamy moment especially because cy spurrier as the only person who has yet written jacks really is sort of responsible as her creator for being sure to craft a narrative for this character that is fair to the fact that she is a minority she is a woman he has some you know responsibility for being the person that created this character so giving her a sense of emotional vulnerability that doesn't in any way incapacitate her as a hero this was a really bold moment that actually kind of codifies male in many ways because it wasn't a daddy moment it was like a i'm in battle this is my dad moment and i just really thought that this was a a pretty well done job for the just really it was an enjoyable issue beginning to end a lot of Jax codifies male, and I think that even is why they go with the name Jax. They're they're trying to let a woman tell a masculine story, because why not? You know, I did wonder if they were going with if they might be trying to paint a narrative with that story as well, because the Black Knight outfit that Jax is using is very male leaning. Like, Faiza couldn't tell that it wasn't Dane. Does it also sound like deeper, or is Faiza just like really cool about people's voices? Because I think it'd be cool to just be cool about people's voices not assume their gender based on how high or low it is yes i gotta be honest that sounds very fiza to me in general fiza is very anybody gets to be who they are so like that that's very possible to me (laughs) 
Hey everybody, Nico here one more time. Strange Academy is a longtime favorite segment here for us at Access for Podcast, and it's so amazing to have newer voices like TK, who's been on the title for just a few issues, and classic voices like Robbie and Kyle. It's just such a pleasure to get to edit this title every single month, just like it's our pleasure to bring you this show three times a week for Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays. So until next time, guys, keep those mutant lights lit. That's Krakoan Gateways open. The obituary of Doctor Strange will never end. And we'll see you for another X-Men X Wednesdays. Hey everyone, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at Marvel's mutants, magic, and many voices week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hey everyone, I am Robbie, and you can find me at Age of Hilarious on Twitter. And today we are talking about Strange Academy number 15 coming out right before the heels of some big news that uh, Strange Academy is going to be ending its first semester with issue 18, taking a little hiatus and then coming back for second semester. I have to imagine sometime right around the time that Multiverse of Madness launches. That would make sense. Right around the time I imagine that we will see the uh, death of Doctor Strange miraculously be reversed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he he did show up in the cover for the excellent. Yeah, yeah the yep. excellent. Yep. yep, that we don't we know nothing about. You know, we've right. got Dead Girl in this book. We've got Strange in a possibly canon, possibly in-universe thing. Who the heck knows? Big things coming up for Doctor Strange this year, and I think it bodes really well for Strange Academy. Mm-hmm. But this story picks up kind of in the middle of a lot of different threads. Uh, overall, what would you guys think of this issue? It was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I really liked was kind of like the training part in the beginning. We love a solid training sequence. We love to like see people be in their element see you know not just the teachers because you get that great magic and wong battle but to see that you know see the kids get to sort of bust out powers for a little bit it's always fun yeah and it was kind of cool to see like like it's so really cool to see iliana training students because like years back she was in their spot yeah she yeah exactly <laughs> she was an academy kid and it's sometimes it's nice to see her arrogance cut down a little bit as well so. yeah i love that it was played <laughs> You know, played for fun. But there's also a callback to it when she is the one that pulls Calvin away from Alvi and she, you know, she says, I know what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And it's just a, you know, it's a brief little like reminder that Ilyana has absolutely been that kid that goes too hard. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, we've got Emily worrying about Doyle. And Kyle, you were with me when we did coverage for last issue. And we were talking a lot about that, that future, future site that Doyle has and sort of the, division between the kids that may or may not be destined to occur yep i'm still wondering what could have led them there but this issue gave me a lot of ideas of how they could have gotten there between emily's power spike when she gets angry calvin's actions they're kind of on the edge of something here yeah absolutely and you know just the fact like just doyle being a door mama you know they oh yeah (laughs) the the fact that that sort of always looms large in a way that I think the book tackles very well. There's a threat there, but they've created this character that seems so good hearted that we're rooting for that threat to somehow be mitigated through, you know, the power of friendship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Robbie, you were not with us on coverage and just caught up on these issues. What did you think reading the, this storyline together and seeing the, the come up of this potential dark future? It's it's really sad, to be honest, because, like, throughout the series, like, yeah, they have their little fights and stuff, but overall, they're a fun group of friends, so to see them potentially being split in this middle, where it's gonna kind of be like a damn near fight to the death type of thing, it's pretty sad. And then to see Doyle witnessing that, and his first decision is to drop out, it's kind of, it's just sad to see him, like, I'm not sure if he's, like, immediately giving up but i don't know i'm just and i mean you know i think the the fight with between calvin and alvi sort of it, it becomes one of those places where you can start to see a potential fracture between mm-hmm. the group you know so we're starting to see the wedges come into play one of the neat things about the training class and the fight scene and the fallout from it is that we do get a glimpse of ava from the marvel voices comunidades book who you know we also talked about along with strange academy 13 and 14 what a great character she was and how excited we were to potentially see her in the academy and kind of trying to guess around when when she might start to show up so you see her in in a panel on page 14 of the digital with the rest of the kids just kind of staring on after this fight and i'm pretty stoked to see that you know she already has gotten her first in book appearance and you know really hopeful for her being a big character in semester two i think i counted her on at least three different pages oh really yeah i was really excited about seeing her what i was also surprised with is that they mentioned the two other new students they don't actually appear yet remember seeing they were originally introduced in that book that we call an annual (laughs) (laughs) and they got an actual mention in this issue it's exciting i mean i think you know strange academy has as we were talking about you know really it's filled my my itch for a school book. I love what Vita Ayala has been doing in New Mutants uh, with the kids, but it's not really quite a school book. Seeing a sort of mix of new characters and references to old characters and, you know, old characters that are now adults in a setting like this is, it fills a need in the Marvel Universe. We always want to see what the next generation is doing and how they're coming up. And I think it makes me really excited that, you know, they didn't keep the cast small and try and limit it and really lower our expectations they seem to be going really wide and expansive with it and it makes me you know excited for the future of mystical and horror marvel especially you know with rumors swirling around that hickman might be headed around that way sometime in the future so after we go through the battle class and the sort of fallout from that at the end of which zoe says that she has an idea what's going on with calvin that's obviously it was my first sense of relief ever since this calvin storyline started because i'm thinking how the hell are they going to get him out of this and how deep is he going to go before they're you know before he gets help from his friends and so the first sort of hint that somebody knows what's going on and can help him out made me very relieved but after that we've got emily going to go look for doyle and sort of chewing out miss stanton and we reveal that doyle did not in fact leave i am incredibly relieved that he didn't leave knowing that dr voodoo convinced him that him leaving might be the catalyst for all for that future and to just let things play out instead of trying to change things that made me really happy and you know what Doyle is incredibly hard on himself and because he's such a good kid and he doesn't want to live up to be the villain that his dad
that is. And I, I, I want to see him succeed. I don't want to see him throw everything away because of that fear. So this, this was a good step. Yeah, I'm really happy to see that he's saved. And there's so much about his character that kind of reminds me of like Raven in a sense, with like that like looming potential darkness of what you you, you may do in the future. You're talking about Teen Titans, Raven? Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> I think it's a good point, though. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. You know, it's it's always a tension in Marvel stories of what's going to cause the future. Are we, you know, is it pre predetermined? Are we always heading for this? Can I avoid it? You know, I think it's sort of a, a coming of age, a, a rite of passage for teen students in the Marvel Universe to become aware of a potential future and to ask themselves what's the best way to address this situation now. And Robbie, I think you're right. It was really heartbreaking that Doyle's first thought was to go towards leaving. We see in this issue that that's not exactly what he did, but the fact that his first thought was to sort of take this all on himself and to sort of punish himself and to remove himself from the equation. It is really tragic, even if we see that he had a second thought. It speaks really to his character and what he's already going through in seeing this potential future as a reality. But, you know, he and Emily spend a little time talking. You know, they agree that they can't really know what's going to cause this future. And then they have a cute little splashing in the water moment. Um, (laughs) They remain like just such couple goals. So adorable, like rooting for these children. I love them. That playful scene on the dock that was just absolutely adorable, especially after (laughs) she brings up the whole Eric situation. Right. It's, you know, one of the things that the book does really well is it gives us everything you know it can Mm -hmm. in one scene give you like tragedy and conflict romance and then just like silly little rom-com beats but then it's all just like the kids hanging out yeah and they feel like actual kids teenagers they don't feel like adults pretending to know how to write kids which is i think a criticism we've all had about some of the teenagers showing up on krakoa Mm -hmm. characters we really love we're really happy to see great writers working with them but then when it comes to beats of like actual what teenagers might be doing and again I think it's one of the reasons why them not being in the structure of a school gets to be a little problematic because they are you know hobnobbing with like nation builders and their kids and it's the on the one hand it's cool but on the other hand without uh, the proper writer sort of handling that they don't feel like teens at all yeah it doesn't give a good enough separation between the teen slash kids worlds of growing up and the adult world of dealing with the rest of the world right exactly and you know we have a whole other doctor strange story going on right now in death of doctor strange and what they're dealing with there is so different than what the kids are dealing with in strange academy as it should be they're at a different point in their life you know one of the big looming questions in this whole series is how are they paying for the magic and the adults know and the kids don't and the kids are starting to question is this sustainable and you know what how is this all working and what's going to happen going forward and those are really real like concerns that you would have as a teenager like are is somebody mortgaging my future without my knowing about it it's possible i think for us to be compelled by their storylines reading this as adults who might be like you know i i relate to what's going on in death of dr strange a lot more in this feeling of like the weight of the world is on my shoulders but i love seeing these teenagers like have actual teenagers 
major problems. It's definitely uh, a nice shift. Even like seeing like little lighthearted moments with like like how y'all mentioned like the splashing. It's just nice to see kids having fun because there's so many damn books where shit's just way too serious for the whole time. And I agree, it's definitely a nice shift to see them dealing with like their own little issues that you might not see in books that have that might have like more adult characters. Yeah, I mean, it's I think that we we can get excited about kids being kids. It doesn't all need to be end of the world, and yet. You you know this book does have a have a little bit of like that the future scene it might not be the end of the world but we know that that looms large and it feels like a bigger thing than just teenage issues so again just hitting that balance in those notes is you know scotty young has done a great job we get a quick little little bit of zoe going in to talk to dr voodoo again just you know leading up to this last i think what's going to be sort of the the culmination of calvin's storyline and just knowing that forces are martial to address what's going on with him you know he very feel very much feels like he's alone and in the dark and has to take care of the stuff himself and kyle you'll recall we had a great conversation on issues 13 and 14 in which i think really all of us i remember specifically me steven and nico were saying that calvin was really driving us insane and we maybe didn't like the storyline of him being this like snotty kid but raven actually mentioned that there's a very real interpretation of this as him being a child of adoption and feeling incredibly disposable mm-hmm. and you know needing to have an edge and you know be a strong feature in the dog and pony show otherwise he could get discarded and it completely changed my thinking about the character and I was really excited for this issue to go come out because you, we knew we were going to see him take the next steps with gas lamp and you know having this different perspective really changed how I looked at it did you find something similar yeah i wasn't getting annoyed by him like you guys were he's one of my favorite characters just because i really feel for the struggle that he's experiencing him taking these steps my heart is breaking because i'm seeing where this goes he's becoming a drug dealer yeah he's he's addicted and now he's trying to push it onto the other kids at school it's gonna be rough until this gets resolved and i hope I really, really hope that Zoe is able to get the amount of help that she needs in order to help him. Well, it's interesting you bring up Zoe because, you know, the revelation of Zoe's secret, it did not play out the way it often does in teenage books where, you know, she loses all her friends and people think she's disgusting. It wound up being a really touching story where everybody was like, oh, that's fine. We still love you. And it's been a recurring theme of this book, you know, this sort of you can say it in the simplest terms like friendship always wins out Mm -hmm. i think there's a very real chance that regardless of what happens with calvin and how dark things get for him internally his friends are really going to stand by him when they show up to help it's not going to be in this sort of admonishment and punishment way but in this they might see those same things that raven saw that this was a kid who thought that he could be discarded and rather than stopping him in a very forceful way they're going to find a 
a way to be there for him and to show him that he can never be discarded. They're always going to be friends. That's really what I'm hoping we see out of it. And it's what the story has given us a lot in the past. So fingers crossed. That's one of the reasons why we saw Zoe was like warning him not to talk to Gaslamp. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They genuinely care about him. This is a good example of like why certain practices like gatekeep certain things because people are going to reach out to stuff they have no business going to and they'll end up like fucking themselves over. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been a uh, another smart sort of weave in from Scotty Young is just like not just that their kids and practices need to be gate kept so they can learn, but also that there are traditions and there is knowledge that is local and ancestral and mm-hmm. that is off limits to people that didn't get the understanding of it from, you know, whatever the necessary source is. Zoe knows what the deal is with Gaslamp as somebody who lives in the area. Calvin very clearly does not. The idea that she would know to stay away, but then she would also know when it, what when he wasn't staying away. Everybody is an asset to the team in their own way, but the, the experiences they bring from their backgrounds is one of the biggest ones. And I think it, it is going to be part of what brings us to the final showdown. Again, we get some sort of gorgeous Ramos art of Poppet and of Gaslamp. I remember not really thinking about this the first time around because I was just so intrigued by the character design. But of course, we really still cannot see this person's face. And that obscurity is very obviously intentional. But I'm definitely starting to wonder if there is a familiar face under that large scarf with the glowing yellow eyes. What do you guys think? I think if it is a familiar face, I wonder with like him knowing uh, Dr. Voodoo, if it might be a character like from his past. That's exactly what I was wondering too. The fact that he names Dr. Voodoo by name, he names mm-hmm. Jericho Drum. And unfortunately, I am not very well versed in the history of Dr. Voodoo, so I couldn't start speculating on who his villains were. But I did kind of make a note to myself that I should go dig around and see if there was anybody that felt compelling. I honestly have no idea. I have n- really no experience with Dr. Voodoo. I don't know a lot about the magic side of Marvel. I'm just wondering if there might be some other character who has the ability to grant wishes or to put power into little vessels that other people can use. I think I know a little bit about magical Marvel, but Mm -hmm. there are definitely big gaps. I was having the same thought. Like, do we know anybody? Have there been any big storylines with wishes? The only thing I can think of is, of course, and it wasn't really a wish but like Mephisto and like One More Day and you know Spider-Man wishing for Aunt May to live and then making a whole bunch of sacrifices in exchange for it Mm. Oh, I doubt it's going to end up being Mephisto (laughs) but it would be kind of cool if it was yeah it would be cool but yeah it doesn't feel like this would be the place to have him pop up right exactly especially in a disguise (laughs) in a steampunk Victoria (laughs) and carrying around a puppet and somebody who has been in this position for a couple years at least right. it seems like a very long scale play <laughs> right yep C- crazier things have happened in the That's marvel true. universe that is true 
but no, I mean, and I'm sure like there's some glaringly obvious Dr. Voodoo character that we just happen to not know about as we discuss this, who like readers who are familiar are going to be screaming into their headsets like it's this dude. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the meantime, we get this incredibly compelling character design out of Gaslamp, two layers of sidekick. It's just like it's a great setup. And, you know, I think the fact that this book as a whole didn't really play into a lot of like hero and villain lots of fighting tropes for its first semester it having a relatively subtle villain that works a lot visually and just sort of excites the eye rather than needing a lot of action around him has been a great choice you know there's plenty of conflict already i'm glad we're not doing a ton of battle scene yeah i don't feel like strange academy is really a battle book it's more of a thinking on your feet and solving problems not always using your powers in order to resolve the issue absolutely yeah so it really isn't a superpower book and i like that even though they have magical powers right and i think we've seen so much from marvel over the past couple decades you know from academy x to avengers academy a lot of the teen books were about fighting the teens of marvel for the past couple decades have been through it in terms of battles and i think taking a little break from that and doing something else uh, you know kind of giving us that personal side was a very smart choice and it, it comes it's coming to fruition in these last few issues i absolutely love it genuinely with the way scotty young has written these characters like there's so much damn love that has been poured into every single character to where i definitely see potential in other writers in the future easily wanting to snatch these characters up for future titles like well maybe like after semester two but uh (laughs) i mean it'll be interesting to see i you know i bet there are a couple that for whatever reason could leave the book by semester two and you know show up elsewhere eventually these kids are going to graduate you know they're we're, we're clearly seeing them learn so they might be in this book for for a while but this is a really great establishment of new characters that other writers are going to get to play with and going to really want to play with in the future yeah like i would definitely love to see probably zoe be on like avengers or something that'd be fun yeah absolutely yeah i can see alvi and Eric moving over to thor at yeah. some point especially with their connection to enchantress i mean emily feels like she's going to be a really strong and straightforward sorceress oh yeah oh definitely yeah. she could easily be an avenger there's no way one of these kids doesn't wind up running around with the young avengers at some point i would love that yeah That'd be cute. <laughs> oh it'll be cute to see calvin on the young avengers right oh. doyle's another one that i could see, like there's a lot of promise amongst these characters i think you know the biggest thing that we're currently missing is a mutant magic user Right, that can, yeah. That can take some experiences back to Krakoa. Yeah, because really all of the mutants in the book are just faculty. So, right. Yeah, we re- we really do need a mutant character added to the to the student. I think time will really tell. You know, if if Krakoa is going to be more of a like five to ten year thing rather than a three to five year thing, mm-hmm. at a certain point we'll have to settle into okay, they might live on Krakoa, but you know they've got to do other stuff. Like they can't always be on the island, and you know. 
know, whatever kid that is also tapped into magic needs to be at Strange Academy, not just in the wild hunt, hoping that Warpath shows up to give them an education. <laughs> Maybe semester two. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kyle, as you pointed out, this is a uh, pretty clear metaphor for the kid that, you know, gets hooked on drugs and whose dealer asks and, you know, tells them they can have more product if they push it to the other students. Mm-hmm. And in our final page, we get exactly that. We get Calvin going to what is ostensibly the the next battle class or, you know, maybe it's recess. I don't know. Everybody's yeah, it looks like powers. recess. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's using their powers. And one of the kids says, whoa, I wish I could pick up on this as fast as you do. And that's when Calvin pulls out his tiny little gas lamp wishes. And we realize that he's going to start dealing to all the kids in school. And, you know, this is this is all coming to a head. Mm-hmm. No, I could just imagine in the next issue, we're just going to see a bunch of the kids like having all this extra abilities. <laughs> and then we're just going to see a panel of Zoe just squinting. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. I think that's that's spot on for what really needs to be happening. She'd be like, what is this shit? <laughs> what are you doing? Like, how is suddenly everyone powerful? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's there. There is quite the potential for chaos here. It will be Calvin's fault when something goes wrong. And the question is, is it something that these friends can sort of team together and help him get past? Or is this the start of sort of a lost cause arc for Calvin? And is that going to factor into the looming bad future that is very possible? Very good question. Um... (laughs) And, you know, the thing I'm excited about is we know we're we're coming to the conclusion of this first arc this first semester but we know there's more coming and you know this book has had great pacing and i'm glad that it doesn't seem like we're going to be rushing an answer yeah and we we still have three issues to to wrap this up so right thankfully yep for some supplementary material we get a battle class bracket to determine you know the the champions of the class and and I think this is something that uh, we should talk about doing like a Twitter spaces or something for and all bring our brackets in and make some cases for who's going to win. That would be super cute. Right? Yeah. This was this was where I, f- I saw uh, Heidi and Howie's names brought up. Oh, there you go. Yep. I see them yep. right there. As well as Doombot Jr. <laughs> and Cat uh, Beast. Yep. I, yeah, I, I'm fascinated to, <laughs> to learn about those characters. I think Doombot Jr. could go very far. I really and truly, I mean, you know, we've already seen one robot child of, uh, well, we thought it was Victor Von Doom, but it end up, ended up being Ultron going very far with the runaways i love a spell casting robot uh so weird <laughs> but it's amazing i love it i'm gonna tell nico i think we should uh bring our bring our brackets in and you know either that or have a long running like fantasy football version where you know as the books come out and we see any like interaction between these characters we decide to score it as a win or a loss on the last page we get a preview for what's coming up in issue 16 and it is 
his prom. We got Doyle in his cute little tuxedo. Oh, he's so cute. <laughs> this book just, it hits all the school notes. And of course there's going to, I mean, it might not be prom. It might be a school dance, but of course there's going to be a school dance. Of course we got Doyle in his adorable suit with his little boots and Emily still wearing her headphones and her Converse. I mean, it's just, this book is so much fun. It has such a good understanding of when to use the trope and when to subvert it. It's a photo of them at prom going to this dance, but it's also a photo that's on fire. Um, so I think it's a, uh, it captures pretty clearly what, what's coming up for these kids. And, you know, despite the fun, they're never quite out of the woods. I really like how Scotty waited until way later in the series to do like a prom type of issue because sometimes in like teen books, they tend to like do it more towards the beginning. Yeah, you want to rush it because you think it's like it's going to be this iconic moment mm -hmm. that could anchor the book. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and but what the fault with that is we don't really know the characters. Like, had they done this at like issue five, it would have been like, oh, okay, that's cute. But at this point, we genuinely know the whole cast. So right, it, just, like, it feels way better. Doyle and Emily are so cute at this point. All I want to do is see them like at a mm -hmm. dance or on a date. <laughs> issue four, you know, they were already kind of having a, a flirty thing, but I didn't really care at that point. I'm just yeah. trying to figure out like, so I think you're absolutely right. And again, it just speaks to Scotty Young's understanding of the tropes and the pacing, the idea of semesters. All this stuff makes a ton of sense in the context of a high school book. He has done a really good job of just not like picking a trope out of the bucket and slapping it into the book, but really knowing when it's going to work and be appropriate. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, guys? Any last thoughts on Strange Academy number 15 before we wrap up? It was an excellent book. It moved a bunch of characters forward. I'm looking forward to seeing where things go in issue 16. I'm I'm definitely hoping that we see Zoe take more action. Her going to Dr. Voodoo was definitely a great first step. I, I'm really hoping that we see her working with him to develop a plan or something. Yeah, it's gotta be her. Yeah, it has to be her because this is, this is somebody that she has history with. So she should be the one to do the confrontation. And it's her turf too. You know, she, really is. she knows the history of this area. She knows the good actors and the bad actors. And, and she's a character who, you know, she, while she has been featured more recently, she was always one that we were sort of champing at the bit for more information about. And I think, you know, not in a bad way, because there's so many characters, you just got to kind of spread it all out. But now it's really her turn to have a little bit of action. And I'm here for it. <laughs> but I'm definitely excited to see where this is going. And I, I don't like I it would just be cool to see like a little like fight maybe between her and Gaslamp. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say going forward, I just know Calvin is gonna probably do something that's gonna stress me out. <laughs> But it'll be okay because Zoe's <laughs> gonna probably save him. I mean, the fact of the matter is, Irik spends so much of this book being a total asshole, and they still are friends with him because you know they're all friends. Like this is this is a friendship endures book. Calvin absolutely is making a huge mistake right now, but he has been you know he's Doyle's fist bump buddy. Like they're you know I I have to believe that regardless of what he's done, they've got room for forgiveness and and getting him past it. 